All right. We have here Travis Chapel. Landon and I had the privilege of watching Travis speak at the battle summit that Zach Knight was hosting. And Travis was just up there speaking our language, man. You know, Landon and I have been in this world for about five years now. And we've been doing the system that Travis was talking about when it comes to networking and building relationships and bringing value to your community. But we didn't understand the science behind it. And then we started to really understand it. And Travis put it in such a way where there's actually words and science behind this process of building out a network and really starting to grow and monetize that network in ways that a lot of people don't think about. And so, you know, Travis, as you guys have probably listened to a lot of his stuff, he has the Build Your Network podcast. He's the founder and CEO of a platform called Guestio. He's been featured on Rob Deerdeck's podcast. He's had multiple like big, big entrepreneurs like Shaq on his podcast. So super excited to dive into this. Travis, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was great. Uh, great chatting a little bit at the event. Yeah. Happy to happy to be on the show. Absolutely, man. So I, I want to be able to dive you know, into some more tactical stuff, but want to get a little bit more of the story. We heard it, right? You know, grew up in, in California with, you know, in this, in this radicalized, you know, Christian area. And I'll let you talk a little bit more about it. And then you started knocking on doors. Talk to us about that, that real quick and how that transpired to where you're at. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was kind of a interesting or odd way to grow up, but I didn't realize it at the time. At the time, I just thought it was totally normal. I thought everybody else was weird. And yeah, it, it, the way I kind of phrase it to people is the reason why I think it's relevant for the story about why I'm, I am where I am today is that growing up, we didn't have a lot of options about what we we're going to do with our lives, what we we're going to do with our careers. We didn't get asked a lot of questions about, hey, you know, do you want to be an engineer? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? What are your interests? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? We didn't have career counselors. We didn't have anybody that was telling us what schools to apply to or kind of grades we needed to get or any of those types of things. So it was really like two options in the path, which is, do you want to be in a ministry in full-time, you know, Christian ministry, or do you not want to be in full-time Christian ministry? And if the answer was yes to full-time ministry, then the same, the school that I went to and church that I went to also had a college on the same campus. So I went from kindergarten all the way through senior year of college on this one campus. And if you said you're going to ministry, they give you an application to their college. Cause why would you go anywhere else? And then if you said you weren't going into ministry, they just kind of give you a thumbs up, like good luck <laughs> doing whatever it is that you're going to do. So most of the people that went either went to the, you know, either went to the, the, the college on the campus or they went to the military or they went to community college. Like that was like the path forward for everybody that went to that school. And so I ended up in, in the ministry college because that, you know, I have a tendency to like be all in on whatever it is that I'm doing. And at the time for me, that was, that was the ministry uh, thing. And then uh, by the time I graduated, I uh, was doing this internship and just do it like doing the internship just made me realize how much I didn't really want to be doing it. And what was interesting is at the time I was doing my first ever sales job. I was doing door to door sales in college just to make some extra money, put some money away for the future and all that stuff. And, and I realized I found myself on the weekends doing this internship at this church that I uh, like dreading doing that and then wanting to be back home at school so that I could work my, my, you know, sales job. And I was like, this is kind of a red flag. Like, you know, I'm, I'm experimenting with both of these things while I'm finishing up school. And I like the thing that I'm supposed to be stopping in a couple of months. And I don't like the thing that I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. And it was the first time where I really started kind of feeling alone and asking myself questions and, you know, getting really introspective about what I wanted to do with my life. And it was really starting to sink in that like, this is going to be like the rest of my life thing. And I ended up just, I ended up just going with my gut and 
skipping out on the ministry thing, which is like a really big, like taboo thing to do in that world and started doing door-to-door sales full-time. And that was the only thing I knew how to do. And with a degree of what that was as useless as mine, I graduated, but it was a it was a double major in Bible and church ministries, which is already fairly useless. But the fact that it was unaccredited made it even more useless than the paper that it was printed on. And so I didn't really have people lining up to give me jobs. The only thing I could make real money at was doing sales. So I just went door-to-door, 100% commission, door-to-door sales. Nobody told me what to do. Nobody controlled my schedule. I went and I worked and I, you know, you, you kill what you eat in door-to-door or in 100% commission anything, you kill what you eat, or you eat you kill. So so I, it was my job every week to go kill so that my family could eat. And I and I liked that. It made sense to me. And then eventually, I just got kind of sick of doing that. And I, again, looked into the future, saw what was possible, saw what it was going to take, saw what my future would look like. And I didn't like it. And I wanted to change paths. And like that's kind of how the podcasting thing got brought up, because I just, I was so lost. And I was kind of aimless and lonely and searching for what I was going to do next. And found it through personal development, self-help, kind of just getting in that world for the first time and reading and listening to things that were interesting to me. That's how I came across podcasting and decided I wanted to start a show and then started it. And, you know, it was over six years ago now. Awesome, dude. So, so let's pause there because I want to dabble on the, the door-to-door sales thing for a second because a lot of people that, that listen to this podcast are a little bit younger, just getting into their sales career, entrepreneurship career. And we have insanely high respect for those that are crazy enough to go into door-to-door sales. It's one of the hardest things to do, but one of the best muscles to build. And one of the things that if you're able to stomach it for over time and get good at it, you can pretty much get good at anything. So tell us a little bit more, you know, very quickly about the recap of how you, you know, when you first started, the anxiety that comes with it, how you build the muscle and how important that was and how that translated to all the success that you have today. You know, what's funny, man, is I don't remember at the beginning being like, like anxious, maybe a, maybe a little bit nervous, just wondering if it was going to be something that I, something I'd be able to hack or you know, put together. For whatever reason, I had some sort of a natural proclivity toward selling, or maybe it was persistence, or maybe it was just not giving a shit about getting rejected. I, I really don't know exactly what it was, but because because a lot of people would look at it as I, I grew up knocking on doors for the church, like being in, involved in that church every weekend, we would go knock doors and invite people to come to church. So, you know, I was doing quote unquote door to door sales from a really young age for the church, but I also had a ton of friends who grew up the same exact way that I did, did all the same things that I did and couldn't couldn't make it in the door-to-door game. So I know it wasn't a factor of just that. There were some other things involved with that. But from the first day, man, I was just like, I like the first time I got a deal, I was like, wow, I just made whatever it was, you know? Like I, I was always entrepreneurial and I was always trying to find ways to get more money. You know, I was selling stuff to other kids in elementary school. I started a landscaping business when I was in high school. And I was always trying to figure out how to have more money. And I and I just I, I liked having money. And I don't know if that came from something that was an innate desire in me. You know, my dad was in real estate. He was a real estate salesperson, essentially. And so, you know, maybe I picked it up from him or maybe it's just kind of what was wired in me. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I started in door to door and I, I was just really competitive. And there was a lot of people that I knew that were in the game and I was just try- I was trying to go out and beat them and do better than everybody else. And so that, that was how it was for me. It was just like being really, com- being ultra competitive, going out, being willing to get on doors and just putting in more hours and putting in more work than anybody else was willing to do. And it, I just, you get better over time. And the better they, the better you get, the easier it gets to continue doing it because your confidence increases. The space between yeses decreases and the rejection is a little bit less. And when that happens, like you increase confidence, you increase money in your bank account. And at that time in college, like we had like, the job to have on that campus because since it was an unaccredited school 
there, there, there were no scholarships. There was nobody there just the, who were just going to school for free and, and got, you know, a grant from the government or they're, they're like, you just had to pay for school. That's how it was. Now I was lucky because my parents paid for my school, but I'm saying it was the job to have on campus because everybody, like there's a lot of people whose parents couldn't afford to pay for their school. So they were working full time, going to school full time to get their unaccredited Bible degree. And so this job was perfect because like they paid you hourly but they also paid you commission and bonuses and all these other things. So it was like, I'm over here working, you know, as a 19, 20 year old, I'm working 20, 25 hours a week, getting paid full time with like PTO and benefits. And I was making like 1500, 1600 bucks a week, just like knocking doors. I had a team of like 15, 20 guys. Like I was, I was one of the main people that was hiring people from the school. So the school was like setting up interviews for me. Like it, 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 you know, felt it felt like a really fulfilling thing at the time. I enjoyed the leadership portion of it. I enjoyed training other people. I enjoyed watching them make money and I enjoyed making more money for myself while, while like while helping other people make money. It was just like, it seems like this is a win-win for everybody. You know, we have a good product. I get to make money by selling it. And then I get to teach my friends how to go make money so that they can make more money. You know what I mean? So for me, it was just always that factor. And, and it was like, yeah, the rejection sucks. And yeah, there are some days that are really, really crappy days, but then you get that paycheck and it's like, nah, well, I mean, what else am I going to do? Like go sit somewhere and work for like $11 an hour where I can't have any chance of having, like I got, I got this, actually the golf, the golf clubs that I still have to this day was like one of the most expensive things I had ever bought myself at that time. And it was like a 12 or $1,300 golf set, but it was cause I got a $2,000 bonus one week. It was just a bonus. It was like, on top of everything else that I made, it was like a eight thousand, like a seven or eight thousand dollar month, and I made a couple two thousand dollar bonus, like at nineteen or twenty. And I went and bought my golf clubs with it. You know, it was just at the time, I was just like, we're we're having a blast, and it was fun. I didn't think about like the downsides of it. I was only thinking upsides at the time. So this is at nineteen years old. That was going to be my question. How old were you going through that period of your life? So nineteen, you got done school at what age? Twenty twenty one. And that's where you jumped into another sales role. Did you stay in that role? Yeah. So I just went full time basically. So I was in college right. knocking and then I finished college in three and a half years. So I finished in December and then I got married to my high school sweetheart in January. And then I walked and got my diploma in May. And then in September, I moved for the first time ever away from the place that I grew up to take a job air quotes here for those listening to take a job in ministry at this place in a church in Fresno, which is like three and a half hours North of Southern California, where I grew up central California. And I was taking this job there because it was the only pastor that just told me that they wanted me to come. They were just like, we just want you to come to the church or whatever that means. It's like, if you want to be a layman in the church and just work an outside job, cool. If you want to have a part-time job, we have one available and we'll offer that to you. If you want to have a full-time job, we'll have that available and we can offer that to you. It's just like whatever capacity you want to come like hang out at our church and like start going to our, our church. It's like, we're just looking for really good members like yourself too. And we'd love to hire you. We'd love to offer you full-time, but if you don't want to do that, we don't want you to do that. And it was like the only authority figure in my life to that point that showed that told me that there was even an option to not be in like a hundred percent full-time Christian ministry. So like I jumped at the chance. I took the part-time jobs because like everybody at the college, like the, the number that they brag on, like their core KPI obviously is students placed in ministry. So they want to know before you leave, like, Hey, where are you going to serve in ministry? And so it allowed me to honestly tell everybody in my life, oh, I'm going up to Fresno to serve at such and such church with, you know, and blah, blah, blah. 
And so by the time I got up there, basically like the, the job at the church is, I, I, I think I, I think I worked like maybe one or two days there at that part-time job. And then I started, I took an internal transfer in the company I was working for at the time to do a different sales job in the company because that sales job came with a salary and I was trying to buy a house and the bank wouldn't take my hundred percent commission income because I hadn't been doing it long enough. So I had to get a, I had to get a salary that told them that I was capable of paying my mortgage. So that was the only time in my life I ever had like a J-O-B job where I had a boss and I had to show up somewhere nine to five type of thing. And I had it for four and a half weeks. And then two days after my house closed escrow, I quit and, and never went back. And I, and I got a job at a different company that was 100% commission door to door. You build all these muscles at such a young age. Like, uh, how do you think that some of the things that you went through in college, going through the conversations of sales, the repetition that you that you were able to get from all that, how has that translated, you know, through those periods, building the confidence to pivot the way that you did a couple of times, it sounds like post-college as well. Like talk about that transition and and then, you know, when you decided to over time end up into the spot you're in now. Can you just talk about that evolution and just some of the risk that was taken to get to that point? But the confidence that it took to get there obviously was built from the beginning, right? Yeah, I think it just forced me to mature at a really young age. You know, I was I was married. I had, I had a, we bought a house. I was 21 and, and had a wife and a mortgage and like bills, like real bills to pay. You know, there wasn't like a, let me go couch surf with my buddies for four or five years type of a thing while I figure this life thing out. That just like that phase didn't exist for me. So I was just kind of forced to, to be an adult, to like have a, be a real adult, have real responsibilities at that at that age. And I think that potentially those things also made me confront some of the other things in my life. And really when I left that world and the lack of support that came with leaving that world made me really get, you know, kind of uh, introspective and started asking myself a ton of questions about my value system. What do I really believe about how the world works, about God and the Bible and all these like crazy difficult questions that people theorize and pontificate over for decades. And I was forced to kind of uh, come up against those things at a really young age and forced to come to my own conclusions, regardless of what it meant for my social status, regardless of what it meant for my relationships, my close relationships, even with my wife or with my best friends or with my parents or with the people that I grew up with that were like brothers to me, sisters to me, you know, like I knew that it was going to jeopardize most of those things. But at the same time, to me, it was just a matter of I cannot and refuse to live my life for anybody else's opinions, because at the end of the day, I have to wake up. I'm the only one that has to wake up and be me. And it's not them that has to live with my decisions that I make. It's me that has to live with the decisions that I make. And I can blame it on their influence and I can blame it on the environment in which I was raised and I can blame it on external circumstances all I want. But at the end of the day, I'm the one that has to wake up and live with the choice that I decided to stay or the choice that I decided to leave or the choice that I decided to be more neutral. Like I had to be the one that was going to be responsible for those decisions. And, you know, I made them pretty, pretty early on without like, and it sounds kind of silly to say because, you know, I'm, we're, I'm still like fairly young myself, but you know, I'm, I'm not Gen Z. I didn't grow up with the internet. I didn't grow up with TikTok and I didn't grow up with, with a plethora of information at my fingertips. You know, I still grew up using desktop computers and, you know, we still had floppy. I still remember floppy disks and I still remember burning music onto CDs and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, 
So the information wasn't as readily available. You, and it wasn't as much in your face. You had to go search it out and you had to find the information for yourself and, and, and do it in a way that, you know, isn't a 60 second TikTok video from some, <laughs> you know, a philosopher or, or, or apologist or whatever, you know? So sure. at the time it was, it was a little bit more difficult. YouTube was just getting really started. You know, yeah, it was, it was just like, I, I have to make these decisions for myself because at the end of the day, I'm the only guy, I'm the only guy that's got to look me in the mirror and be like, yeah, you're you and you're the one that made these decisions and you're the one that has to live with them. And it really hit me because it was when I was really deciding to not go into ministry because I wrestled that with that decision for months and months, like getting like not getting good sleep and like just feel, feeling guilty, feeling like I was letting everybody down, feeling like I was not, you know, living up to my potential for God and feeling like all these great, like, you know, feelings of guilt and shame because I didn't feel like I wanted to do this path anymore. And I was just like, what's going to happen if I come back to this? Cause the church that I grew up at was also kind of like the church in that movement. So, you know, they, like they hosted the big leadership conferences with all the pastors in that entire, and they would all come to our, our, you know, conference and come to our campus for those things. And, and so like they hosted the leadership conferences and the youth conferences and all these other things. And I was like, well, I was like, man, if I go back to the campus, I know they're going to start asking me like, what are you doing? And, and how's that going? And I know, I know that, you know, they're going to be disappointed if I come back as a layman or whatever. And I started kind of really thinking through it. And I was like, wait a second. So I'm going to see these people like five to eight days out of the year. So that means I'm going to live 357 to 360 days of the year doing something I don't want to do to save face with people with whom I will interact the other five to eight days of the year. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I'll see them for five minutes and they'll be like, oh, good job. I'm proud of you. And then they'll move on. You know, this time it's just like, oh, how's it going? And they don't say good job. I'm proud of you. But that has no bearing on what my day to day life looks like. So why am I letting it affect the decision that I'm going to make where like I have to wake up and do this every day for the rest of my life? And I'm going to make that decision based on five days of the year that I'm going to see these people. This makes no sense. And I like that was the point where I just kind of stopped caring that much. And obviously you never stop fully caring. I don't think I think if you do like props to you and I'm trying to figure out how to do that more every day because it still never feels good to know the people that you loved and respected for a long period of your life, like are talking crap about you or don't, you know, want you to be successful. It doesn't still doesn't feel good. But also, like I said, they wake up every day and look themselves in the mirror. They got to be responsible for their decisions for them and their family. I got to be responsible for my decisions and for me and my family. And ultimately that became the, you know, the decision-making factor for me. I think you just cured insecurity over the last five minutes. <laughs> that that's the, that's the real antidote right there, right? Like being so secure and willing to cha challenge the status quo for you to come up with your own system of belief. So I, I love that, man. So let's transition to to kind of the next the next phase. So now you know you go through all this stuff, and you know you're getting a lot of shit from the people that you grew up with, and now you're like, oh, I'm going into podcasting. I'm, I have to assume that they were even more skeptical there, and. You know, we see all these awesome guests like Patrick Bet David and Shaq and John Maxwell, but it, it obviously didn't start out that way. So tell us a little bit more about the inception of podcasting and then how you started to really build your network and build out this platform to be something that it is today. Yeah, podcasting was super scary, man, because it's a public thing. You know, it's like everybody, everybody talks about like, you know, build in private, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, just go to work for seven years and then come out and people will see what you've done or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, that works for a lot of things, but like, that's the opposite of what podcasting is. <laughs> like it is literally a public build. And so like putting yourself out there like that, especially at the beginning, because at the beginning, you're just going to suck. And like, you know it, 
Everybody else knows it. You're not good. You don't, you have never done it before. You never put in reps. Like you just, you're going to suck at the beginning. And so, you know, you're going to withstand some sort of like ridicule from people who want to see you fail. Cause I had people in my life who genuinely wanted to see me fail and doing something that was like a public build like that, where I was like declaring something that it was, it's so obvious to see the results, whether they're good or bad. You know what I mean? Like that was a scary, a scary step forward. But ultimately, I don't know, man, like I just got to the point again, where I was just like, I want to design a life that I'm comfortable designing. And when I looked at all the people whose lives I wanted to mirror, or whose lifestyles I wanted to emulate, they, they forged the path. And I knew it was going to take a long period of time to see any success with it. Cause that was like, that was the path. That was the blueprint. That was what everybody else had to do. So I was like, well, why am I going to let all these other people's opinions who have never done what I want to do derail me from doing the thing that I know that I want to do and like withstanding the uncomfortable part of doing this new thing, even though I know that all the people who are successful at that thing also had to do that piece of it. You know what I mean? So again, it was just one of those, they can, this is a long game. They can talk, they can talk shit as much as they want to, but eventually they'll be wrong. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And that's what ended up happening. And that's a lot of the, a lot of people have come to me since then and like apologized to me for not supporting and for talking shit and for being a douchebag during the early years when, when, you know, there was no sign that it was going to be successful at all. So, but yeah, I just started doing it. And then to me, it's, it's just like door to door. Like you put in reps, you get better. And it's like you, you get like when you start in door to door or any sales job, if you'd never done sales before, you get rejected a lot and it sucks. But at the end of the day, the one thing you have to hold on to is that it's like sales is a numbers game. It's like in most, in most positions, there are some sales games that are not a numbers game because it's like we only sell the Fortune 1000 companies and like CFOs or whatever. And it's like we can't burn bridges and like burn and turn through, you know what I mean? So, so there, there are mm-hmm. some exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, like you're selling home services or you're selling like most of the sales jobs that exist. It's just a numbers game. And if you have the backbone to withstand enough rejection, you will eventually get a sale because you will eventually talk to somebody whose problem is so obvious that you're offering the solution to that problem. They're going to like you better than they like the last person and they're going to pay and they're going to like work with you. So you get that one win and then it's like, okay, well, how many conversations did it take for me to get this win? Well, how long is it going to take me to have that number of conversations again so that I can get to that win again? Right. But that's when you first start. What happens after you do it for a year, two years, three years, four years? All of a sudden, the distance between wins starts really decreasing. All of a sudden, you're gaining a reputation in that industry for like knowing what you're talking about. All of a sudden, your friends and family all know that you do that thing. All of a sudden, your client base starts growing. You get referrals coming in. Like everything gets easier if you can withstand the first like little bit of rejection, that callous building phase. I liken it to playing the guitar a lot because when I was first learning the guitar and I'm not like a proficient guitar player or anything at this point, I haven't played a long time, but um, for a while I was playing the guitar like a good amount. And when I first started, I genuinely had this thought. I was in high school at the time. I genuinely had this thought like maybe I'm just not meant to play the guitar because this sucks. Because for like three or four months, I'm trying to form chords and put my fingers on the strings and I was playing on a, a, an acoustic guitar, not an electric guitar. And an acoustic, it's it's more difficult to put the strings down on the fret because they're steel strings and they they bite into your, into your fingers, especially like your pinky and your ring finger because uh, those are like weaker fingers to begin with and they're also on the smallest strings. 
So like, it's really hard to press down and make a chord and make it actually sound good. Like you try to strum it and it sounds like it's all buzzing and you're like, um, I think, I think my fingers are on the right spot. Why does it sound so weird? And you, you, you get, you get in your head so much, but what happens after you practice and practice for a couple of months is you build literal calluses on the tips of your fingers. So then you start pressing the strings down and they just press down. And all of a sudden the chord sounds great. And now you know four chords and you can actually progress between those chords and play a song. And it's like, wow, this is actually getting easier. And then once you hit that point, then it's actually kind of fun to practice a little bit. Like the practicing part gets more fun. It gets more fun to put in the repetitions because you have a little bit of skill built in that area. But most people will never make it past the callous building phase. They will quit before they build the calluses because building calluses is painful. It sucks. And it's embarrassing. Like if people are hearing you practice when you first practice the guitar, you suck. It sounds awful. It's embarrassing as hell. Like people will not make it through the embarrassment. People will not make it through the calluses because that part is too difficult. But if you can do that, whether it's playing the guitar, whether it's selling or whether it's podcasting, the result is going to be the same. And that's what happened with me with podcasting over time. It was just like, I kept putting in the reps. I got better as a host. My questions got better. I kept reaching out to better and better guests. At the beginning, the rejection was through the roof. Almost nobody said yes to me. Now, when I reach out to people, it's like the opposite. Like more people say yes to me than people who say no to me. Now, the people I'm reaching out to are more difficult to land scheduling with. So scheduling after you get the yes is a different, a different story at this point. But yeah, now I'm just constantly talking to people all the time. But it was, it was a matter of just like, I was willing to put in the reps, you know, it took me dozens and dozens of episodes to be able to get to like the bigger guests that finally started saying yes. And then that just kind of snowballed on itself. And then you brought up people like John Maxwell or like Tillman Fertitta, who's the billionaire owner of the Houston Rockets. Like their teams reached out to me to interview them when they're coming out with books. Like I didn't even have to do reach out for that. It's kind of the same thing with the sales thing. You start becoming known as that person. People start reaching out to you. You start getting referrals. Everything about it becomes easier. If you're willing to like stick through the callous building phase for any period of time, and just most people won't do that. Yeah. And that's the, that's why we, you know, this podcast is called the consistency wins podcast. Like our brand is called consistency wins. And that really is like, we have enough data over time to realize what actions produce certain outcomes. And if you just right. take those actions daily, that compounds, but most people aren't willing to do that for two to three years to make themselves value enough, valuable enough to mitigate the time it takes to get yeses, right? You have to be like, that's the first phase is becoming valuable. And then that bridges the gap between no and yes over time. So, right. so with the, the limited time that we have, cause, you know, we talked about this compounding and I want to get to this, this point. Cause I selfishly, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast with Rob Deerdeck. Cause I know that you had, you know, probably reached out to multiple people to start, you know, as Guestio started to, to, to build, you know, you're trying to get funding. You're trying to, you know, get the name out there. What better way to get on Rob Deerdeck's podcast and pitch him your idea. Right. And to me, initially it came off and like, I can only imagine how it came off to you was like a shock. Cause he kind of, I don't want to say he shit on the idea, but he, he pivoted the idea a little bit because initially Guestio was, and correct me if I'm wrong, was more so like ways to book higher end podcast guests. But then he shifted the perspective of like, Hey, why don't we just book these high value people for events or anything like that? So what was your initial reaction when you want went on there? And like, what were the action steps that you you took right after that podcast? Yeah, you know, it it was not the first time I had had that conversation. And basically what ended up happening with Guestio and the reason we haven't raised another round of funding was that exact kind of that exact thing was basically like we realized the total addressable market was much smaller than we were initially attacking. And most investors like like Rob or 
I mean, really just any other investor as well, any angel investors or anybody that knows anything about investing in early stage companies, they want to know that the outcome is going to be exponentially higher than the initial risk that they took if everything goes well. And so Rob looked at what I was doing, was just like, hey, this is a good idea, but the market's too small. If you pivoted to doing it like this, then the market could be exponential and you can actually target, you know, consumers and stuff like that, which is essentially what Cameo did and why they worked so well and why they were able to scale so much because they had a scalable, you know, celebrity connection model that worked really well for a long period of time. And so my initial thought after that was like, we need to pivot, we need to pivot. And I started making action, taking actions toward pivoting to be like some celebrity connection endorsement type application. But then after like doing it for a little bit, I was just like, this is not the, the reason that I got into doing this. And frankly, like, I, I think, I think like that space is kind of clogged up with companies like Cameo. There was two or three other competitors that were out there, whereas the space that I was looking to, to, to tackle was more blue ocean like. So we, we didn't end up making that pivot, but it was a good, it was another good conversation just to be like, we're thinking about this. Like we're, we're if we're going to continue going down this lane, it's not going to be like a big venture backed, you know, billion dollar company. We can still turn it into something really cool, which is kind of what we've done, but uh, it's not going to be a, it's not going to be producing 10 million, 30 million, 50 million a year in revenue. You know, it's probably going to be a little bit smaller than that because the market's just smaller. So, sure. Yeah, um, that makes yeah, total sense. Yeah, I had that conversation with Rob, and then there's two or three other investors that said basically the same thing. And like after after enough of those conversations, I was just kind of like, "All right, cool. I know what I'm <laughs> building. You know what I mean? I, and I and I and I accept that. And it's a big problem in this space, so I'm just going to stay focused on this space for a little bit. Sure. And, and I, another takeaway that I got from that that podcast was his answer to your special question that you ask all your guests, because it, it flipped my mind. Cause a lot of people, and I don't want to botch it. So you, please, please feel free to, to state the question. But a lot of people think that the answer is always, it's who, you know, not what, you know, but he f- kind of flipped it on, on the other side of his head. It made a lot of sense. Do you mind sharing like what that specific question is? Cause I don't want to botch it. And then I want to ask that question to you. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was a staple question that I asked on build your network back on the show. So the, the show is now called Travis makes friends. We did a kind of a rebranding at the beginning of this year, but it was called build your network for the majority of the show's ex- ex- existence. And one of the questions that I had wrote down when I first started, because when I first started, I wrote down like every question I was going to ask, like just back to back to back to back to back. Cause I was no good at this, <laughs> the podcasting game. And one of those questions was who, you know, or what, you know, which one's more important and why? And I had always heard growing up, like, well, what you know is more important or who you know is more important than what you know. Who you, it's all about who you know. It's all about who you know. And I thought that when I asked that question, everybody would say, it's who you know. And then we would have a conversation about networking because that was like the whole premise of the show. When I started asking the question, more and more people started answering with like different variations of, of an answer, which was like, you know, some people said what you know. Some people, it's who you know with what you know. Some people are like, oh, it's who knows you. And I, got, I started getting all these like random variations of this question that I was asking. And so it kind of just became like an experiment for myself to keep asking this question over and over again. And even as I became a better podcaster and I wasn't writing out 24 specific questions that I was going to ask, like I was like a journalist going through docket questions. That was the only question that ever like that, that, that stayed like the entire time that, that I was doing that show. And so, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to hear what Rob's take on it was. And frankly, a lot of like the outsized successful people like Rob uh, did come and say what you know. However, if you're asking me what I still think it is, I still think it's who you know, because I think that I think that it is much more readily readily duplicatable for most people to exponentially improve at the what by getting around the right who. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it is no question that you have to be, you have to have a well-rounded what 
right? You have to be, I, I call it competence because competence to me is like your knowledge and your skills. It's like, you know, some, some professions, your knowledge is more important than your skill set is. Some professions, your skill set is more important than your knowledge base is. Uh, but your competence, the what you know, the thing that you can provide, you know, you have to be, you have to have that in your arsenal if you want to connect with people at a high level because getting in the room is one thing but if there's no reason why they should ever contact you there's no reason why they should ever have a relationship with you outside of that room then what good is the connection and then some people get really 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 good at the who and that becomes their what right like they just are so well connected and so good at connecting people and really good with relationships and people that that becomes their what where it's like they they're just so well connected they can just make connections and add value to a bunch of people and like that's the, actually becomes their what is the who. Uh, but I think for most people, what my point is, is, is that if you start with the what, you are less likely to get in rooms with the who. If you start with the who, you are more likely to get really good at the what, if that makes sense. The first yeah. time I kind of realized this or conceptualized this was just to use like a silly example was playing ping pong. So when I, when I was growing up, you know, my dad got a ping pong table and he played a bunch in college. And so I was playing with my friends and I thought I was like pretty decent, you know, and then I played with my dad and he would just kick my ass. And I'm a 12 year old, 13 year old kid. And, and my dad played a lot and he's a pretty good ping pong player. So he would beat me like hands down easily every time. Well, during that time period was also like, you know, from age 13 to 15, I also was like, I was going through a growth spurt and I was, you know, starting to become a man a little bit, you know what I mean? So like by the time I was 15, I was almost as tall as I am now. I'm like, you know, I'm five at that time, maybe five ten or something. I'm I'm six one right now. And so I was like pretty much, you know, about the height that I am. I was athletic and I was playing ping pong with my dad so much that by the time I was 15, I was just as good as he was. Even though I started like like leagues below him within two years, even being 13, 14, 15 during that time, because he never played with anybody that was better than he was. I got as good or a little bit better even potentially than he was by playing with him during that time period, which if I were playing with somebody that was only as good as I was, would I have gotten better? Yes, I would have gotten better. But would I have gotten exponentially better? Probably not. I probably would have only gotten incrementally better, right? It would look more like a straight diagonal line instead of like a hockey stick curve. And, uh, and then what was interesting is that from age 15 to age 20, my dad and I didn't play as much as we played when we the first couple of years. And then we never played with anybody that was better than either one of us. So we would play together. And again, you would get better, you know, incrementally playing together. But because we never played with anybody that was like, that was as far ahead as my dad was to me when we first started, we never got exponentially better from the point that we were. Right. So I, I'm just a firm believer that if you get around people who are just that much better than you at the thing that you're trying to do well, you're going to learn at a rate that's so much faster than anybody else who's just like watching YouTube videos or read a book about it or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's just, yeah. it's inevitable. You go golfing, you know, with the same foursome every weekend and all three of them are worse than you. And you do that for an entire year. You're probably going to be just as good as you were when you started the year, except for the fact that you went once a week and you improved. Maybe it's slightly based on the fact that you went a lot. But and, if you go there's people who are all way better than you and shooting like 20, 25, 30 strokes better than you every game, you will improve dramatically more over the course of the same time with the same number of reps than you would have if you didn't have those people. 
I guess is what I'm saying. So like, I still think it's the who. And then the thing that puts the cherry on top for me, man, is Harvard just completed this like 80 year study, the longest ever study on human happiness. And they had all these hypotheses from the get go about what would contribute most to like a long and happy and fulfilled life. And it was stuff like, you know, your cholesterol levels, you know, just different things like that, that they, that they thought that that might've been it. And then they concluded the study a couple of years ago. And the thing that they found that was outsized comparison to everything else, hands down, the number one thing was good relationships, like high quality, good relationships with good people that were deep and long lasting with people that you love and get along with. And so like, that was the definitive proof to me to just like tip the scales to the who, you know, because just like, even if what you know is you can convince me what you know is even slightly more important. It's just like, I would so much rather be the guy who's worth, whose net worth is 50% less than the guy who focused on the net on the what so much they never got around to the who, but I'm surrounded by people who I have great relationships with, who I love and they love me and we get to like do cool shit in life together. Like that to me is a much bigger win. So to me, the, the who still, you know, trumps the what. Sure. Yeah. And one thing to add there is that like, as you're growing, you're going to eventually get into rooms that you're super anxious about getting in those rooms because like, you're like, do I belong here? Like I, I'm not worthy of being around people that are, you know, if, if I'm just starting out, these are multimillionaires and there's, there's a lot of anxiety that comes along with that, but it forces you to mitigate the time to know the what, because now you want to feel competent around those people. Absolutely. And so we, we actually just posted it today. I was having a conversation with one of my business partners who's insanely successful and he said one of the best ways is to continue to level up your level of mentorship because sometimes it's easy to put yourself in your own echo chamber, right? And it's all, it's great to be the best player at the YMCA, but everyone's the best player at their perspective YMCAs. How can we be the big fish in the big pond? If that makes sense. Yeah. No, exactly. And you bring up a great point. Like that, that was kind of, that's kind of the point about the who you know thing is like you get in rooms with those people. You can only be there for so long without leveling up. You know what I'm saying? Like when I first started and I was totally green, I found myself in all of these rooms because I was just well, I was becoming well connected. And so I'd find myself in rooms like that. But then like after doing that for a period of time, you know, they start to kind of be like, what, what are you, what are you up to? What are you doing? You know what I mean? And, and you just, if you have the same answer, you're not saying anything, you're not progressing, you're not getting better. Like you're not going to make it in those rooms. Like you are going to be dropped and stopped being invited to those things. Or you're going to have to level up to continue being in those, in those circles. And that's just the way that, that's just the way that life is. That's how it is within any social circle, even in like quote unquote lower levels of social circles. Like if you stop doing the stuff that they're all doing, then you're no longer as accepted in that circle. Even if those things are bad things, even if those things are shooting up heroin or getting, or getting blackout drunk three, three nights a week or like whatever it is. Like if you don't do all the things that those people are doing, you're not going to make it long in those social circles. And it's the same thing when you get around successful people. It's just that the sex successful people are doing stuff like, Oh yeah, I wrote my sixth book this year <laughs> and we're, we're clocking in 64 million in revenue. And you know, my show I just launched is already on the top of the Apple podcast charts. Like they're they're it's the, it's the, it's the social activities that they're all engaging in the commonalities that they connect on. And if you're not being one of those people, you're just not going to make it in those rooms. So you're forced to level up and, and to, to your point, like you either, you either got to level up or get out uh, in any social circle or, or like you're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to do something. Well said, man. So one last question as we near this wrap up point, a lot of folks are, you know, that listen are, you know, trying to make the leap or just started in their journey Besides everything that we just talked about, what's one action step that they could take away to start building out a badass network? 
I mean, I'm so biased about this just to make sure I caveat that at the beginning and we, because we help people do stuff like this. But the reason that we do it is because I believe in it, not the other way around. It wasn't like I was just trying to make money and then convince people to believe in this. Um, starting a podcast is like, it's the hack, man. Like I, I, I would still know a good amount of people if I didn't, but nowhere near the network that I have now if I didn't have the podcast. Now it's helpful that the podcast has been somewhat successful over the over the years, but it's not a like we're not a massive show. It's not like we're pumping out a million downloads a month. You know what I mean? Like it's just been doing it for so long and gotten much much better at the craft, and then have already connected with so many people that it makes it easier to go connect with others. I, I would not have a fraction of the of the relationships that I have now if it, if it weren't for the podcast for sure. So, I couldn't like, agree more. It's like because you can start like. It, it can be as good as you want it to be, right? Like we launched a show for one of our clients recently, launched on the Entrepreneur Network. It was, multi, it was a six-figure contract that uh, that we took on just to like coach, consult, produce, long form, short form, audio, everything. They they invested multiple six figures in building out a beautiful studio in their offices. Like this dude's probably like a half a million dollars in on this. So you can start it like that and come out with a bang or... If you're just getting started, you're a college student, high school student, or you just are broke and you're not sure what you want to do with the next phase of your life and you just want more opportunities to start coming coming your way, I and mean, you want to talk to interesting people that are doing things that you think are cool, then you can also do it the way that I did it. And I did it by buying a $60 USB microphone and plugging it directly into my laptop and doing audio-only interviews at the time, which is dumb. Don't do that. Everything also records video. Just That's what we, we were using Zencaster audio only. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was doing Skype back in the day <laughs> when Skype was still like the thing to do before Zoom was around. And I, I, I was doing just purely Skype audio interviews with a $60 USB mic in my, in my, in, in the closet of the place that I was staying because that was the most like soundproofed part, you know, portion of the, of, of the house. You know what I mean? So like you can, you can also start that way super cheap, super affordable, and just have an excuse to talk to people and have conversations with them. And, and so you can start it as big like this other client, or you can start it like I started it. But the cool thing is like it, the barrier is not all those other equipment things. It's the barrier is just, are you willing to start reaching out to people and getting rejected by people who say no to coming on your podcast, you know, and how long are you willing to do that? So I, I, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of anybody and everybody. If you're trying to be successful in business, in a career, in corporate life, anything like that, starting a podcast will benefit you in so many ways beside, like, even if you never get more than a hundred downloads an episode, like, it will benefit you so much from the network that you gain, from the communication skills that you gain, from the ability to ask questions, from the ability to hold conversations with high-level people. Like, you know how many times I've been in a room, a room that I felt unqualified to be in, but where I held my own in conversations because I've practiced having conversations with high-level people like three days a week for six years. You know what I mean? Like most people can't even hold a conversation with those people. Well, I have to because I'm a podcast host. So I have to like study more about their topic, read part of their book, like listen to them on podcasts. I have to gain all of this knowledge and information just in order to have a regular like conversation with them where I don't feel like I'm 
that stupid <laughs> because I'm yeah. talking to somebody that's that smart. So like it forces you to level up. It forces you to become more educated. It forces you to be a better communicator. It forces you to learn all these soft skills, which are becoming the way more valuable than any of the hard skills are with, you know, AI and automation, all these other, you know, things that are taking away from some of those hard skills. The soft skills are becoming even more important and podcasting helps you develop those. It helps you get connected to people, helps you deal with rejection. It helps you create content. Uh, like it, it just, it helps in so many things besides just getting downloads. So I always tell people, man, like you want like a solid network, you want to explode growth inside of like the connections that you have. Just start a podcast. Couldn't agree more. A week. We, we've, we are living proof of this. Like we don't get a hundred thousand episode uh, listeners an episode and we've made a well over seven figures at this point through just the joint ventures that come from the guests that we come on, like all these different things. If you're young or old, the easiest way, especially in the virtual world that we do, the easiest and most effective way to really build out a virtual network and to really speed up that process is through podcasting. Bar none, no doubt. Highly recommend going to follow Travis if you need help starting it up. If you need help, we're happy to help. We'll give you the whole playbook away. It's it's amazing. And, and all you have to do is just start, man. Do it on your phone if you have to. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's the easiest way to add value to someone's life instead of trying to immediately sell someone that might be at a higher level than you on your product or service. Hey, let me bring value by trying to promote your shit on my podcast. Who's going to say no to that? And if they do, great. The next person's going to say yes. So, dude, I, I appreciate you coming on, man. It is, it is awesome to hear from you again and go a little bit deeper. So thank you so much for your time, brother. Of course, guys. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man.